Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right, one announcement um, before we get started. One announcement is that uh, we still need some volunteers to uh, substitute prep school so that prep school teachers can come in here occasionally and participate in communion. We also have the baptism coming up on the, uh, on the afternoon of Sunday, the 9th of September over at Grace Bible Church, and there are maps out in the front, and it will be good to have good attendance besides those who are going to be uh, baptized. Before we get started this evening, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the Word, and then uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can come together this evening to study your Word, that as a body of believers we have the privilege to gather together publicly and in freedom in this nation. We continue to pray for this nation, for its leadership, for our safety, for protection, that you watch over us. Father, this country still stands to support uh, Israel. We still uh, send out missionaries throughout the world, and as they go out from this base, uh, the gospel still goes throughout the world, finances and everything else. And so, Father, we pray that you continue to protect us, that we may continue in these endeavors as a nation. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word, that as we go through these things, that one, one last time as we wrap up our study in Genesis, that you'll uh, help lock these things down in our thinking and that we will be reminded of some of the tremendous doctrines and truths that we've studied as we've gone through this book over the last... Uh, four years. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last time we started off with our review of Genesis. Okay, there we go. Got the new computer up here and everything works different, so bear with me as I try to make, as I go through my learning curve. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And last time we saw that if you break it into two sections, the first part, first 11 chapters deals with four events, and the chapters 12 through 50 deal with four people. Now, what are the four events? Creation, fall, flood, Babel. And the four people are Abraham, very good. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. You've got that down. You can got control of the whole book of Genesis, all fifty, all fifty chapters. Well, so far we've done our review of uh, creation and the fall. Tonight we're going to cover the flood and Babel. And then the next two weeks we'll get into the four people and review Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So that will give us a full five lesson review of Genesis. I told you last time, pointed out that Genesis is divided literarily by these sections called Toledotes, which are translated, these are the generations of, or this is what happened to. We have a prologue in the opening creation from 1-1 to 2-3. 
Then the Toledot, this is what happens to the heavens and the earth from 2.4 to 4.16. This is what happened to Adam from 5.1 to 6.8. This is what happens to Noah, 6.9 to 9.29. This is what happens to Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, 10.1 to 11.9. This is what happens to Shem, zeroes in just on him, in 11.10 to 26, ending with Terah. Uh, Abram's father, then this is what happens to Terah from 11.27 to 25.11. Then we have a wrapping up section on Ishmael from 25.12 to 18, Isaac 25.19 to 35.29, uh, two total dotes dealing with Esau 36.1 to 8 and 37.9 to, uh, that should be, I still didn't change that from last time, 38.2 through 50. 26. So tonight we're looking at the flood section and the Tower of Babel. Now one of the reasons I'm doing these reviews the way I'm doing them is so that prep school teachers, other teachers who need to come in and try to pull all this together without listening to 175 hours because they don't have that kind of time can, can get a good synthesis of the book. And it's also good for us to start with the overviews, go through the details, come back, and put things back together. One of the things that we need to emphasize is the key doctrines that should be covered or should be taught in each of these sections. So we'll begin with looking at the key doctrines that come out of the flood section. Flood section will deal with Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. First of all, grace, the exclusivity of salvation. The first mention of grace, of the word grace, is in Genesis chapter 6, where we learn that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So grace is a key element. When I started off teaching, teaching Genesis, using the vocabulary of Genesis, I talked about the fact that Genesis is about blessing and cursing. And we see the blessing in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then the cursing of the curse of sin in Genesis chapter 3. God continues to bless. He blesses Noah, but he curses the rest of the world. So there's this combination. Now, to put that in other vocabulary, we could say it's about grace and judgment. Grace is, to, is comparable to blessing, and uh, judgment is comparable to cursing. It's a book all about grace and judgment, God's continual grace to the human race, but at the same time, there is still judgment. But grace always precedes judgment, and God's grace always provides the solution for dealing with judgment. Under the uh, grace, the exclusivity of salvation, there's only one way of salvation at the time of the Noahic flood, and that's to enter into the single one door into the ark. Then we have... Uh, inheritance and a personal sense of destiny because of Noah's long-term vision, his understanding of what his destiny was and the security of his destiny and the plan of God and his uh, future reward. He is able to be obedient and stand fast against the pressure of a culture where he is in the minority of one versus probably about four or five billion people on the planet. You just think we're a minority. The angelic conflict also comes into play with the sons of God who are demons, fallen angels who are attacking the human race, seeking to destroy the purity of the human race. And so we get into the angelic conflict, which we did at that, at that particular time. 
Also an opportunity to teach on flood geology, dealing with various issues of fossils and dinosaurs and the age of the earth and uh, just the worldwide judgment that takes place and, again, dealing with the topics of creation and evolution. Dispensations and covenants are important because in Genesis you have three, four dispensations. Four dispensations covered. You have the initial age of, it's called age of innocence. Now, sometimes we think of innocence in the sense of naivete, and so there have been those who have kind of not liked uh, innocence as a term, but innocence in a, as a judicial sense is a clearly appropriate term, and that's how, why that word innocence was originally used, is because man is judicially innocent. He, after the fall, he is judicially guilty. And so this initial period of uh, perfect environment uh, up to the fall, then you have a change or modification of the covenant. We call it the Edenic covenant or the uh, Adamic covenant at that point, and we go into the dispensation of human conscience. That ends with the flood, and you have a new covenant, the Noahic covenant, and that moves into a, a new dispensation of human government. Human government ends with the judgment at the Tower of Babel, and there are uh, there's going to be new stipulations because it's right after the Tower of Babel that God calls out Abraham and begins the emphasis on the descendants of Abraham. So dispensations and covenants need to be uh, covered in this section, as well as capital punishment. Many people today have questions about capital punishment and its validity and doesn't God say that we're to love our enemies? So that means that we shouldn't uh, execute criminals. But, you know, the issue is do we love the victim? And if we love the victim, then we're going to punish the criminal. And capital punishment is laid down in the Noahic Covenant, as we'll see, and is still in effect. The sign of the Noahic Covenant was the rainbow. God made a promise that as long as the rainbow was in the sky, he would never judge the earth with a worldwide flood again. But see, that also means that all of the other provisions in the covenant are in effect as long as you see a rainbow. So every time you see a rainbow, you just remember that means that you're to execute criminals, those who commit capital crimes. Just a little reminder that uh, that Texas just is, what, they had their 4,000th execution? 400. Uh, it should be their 4,000th. <laughs> Ongoing sin, we see man does evil continually. So the doctrine of homardiology and the sinfulness and depravity of man, and then the divine institutions. We have the fourth divine institution in the flood with the institution of human government. Those are flood doctrines. Then we'll get into the Tower of Babel, and these are the doctrines associated with the Tower of Babel. First of all, you have the three great divisions of the human race, this is important for language. It's important for sociology, culture, culture slash worldliness, which is another way that the Bible talks about culture. Then you have the evil of internationalism as the solution to man's problems. So I was reflecting on this today. A question people ask is, well, we live in a global economy. We live in a, in a global world today with information and everything else. Is that internationalism? That's not what we mean by internationalism. What we mean by internationalism is man getting together to try to solve his problems apart from the grace of God, because that's what happens at the Tower of Babel, is man thinking that by 
by what he is doing, that he can achieve that which only the Messiah can achieve. And so the Tower of Babel stands as the earliest example of the League of Nations or the United uh, Nations. If you ever go to the UN building, they have Isaiah 2 stuck over the front door of the uh, of the UN that they will beat their uh, their spears into print, their 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 swords into what is it? They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and man will make war no more over their door. Which means that's a messianic verse talking about how the Messiah. This is what the Messiah will accomplish when he comes and establishes his kingdom. And yet they have uh, subverted that verse as their purpose. So they're claiming a theological role. The, the UN is claiming to be able to do that which only the Messiah of Israel can do. And that ought to set every Christian's teeth on edge. Unfortunately, it doesn't because people are not very well trained. Uh, the evil of internationalism is a solution to man's problems, is pictured at the Tower of Babel. And we also see divine involvement in history and judgment. God allows man a certain measure of freedom, but ultimately when he reaches a certain point of no return, there is interference by God, which man just hates. God you know, muddies up his plans and messes up man's plans and judges him. And this is the beginnings of Babylon. Babylon represents the kingdom of man throughout the scripture. You always have this juxtaposition between Jerusalem as the city of God and Babylon representing the kingdom of man. So this takes us through the basic doctrines that should be covered in going through these sections on the flood and the Tower of Babel. Now let's go ahead and and just look at the flood. Just review it a little bit. We're going to have four things that we will look at in terms of our review. The first is the reality of divine judgment and exclusivity in salvation. That is very important. People today just hate the, the fact that the Bible is exclusive and makes these exclusive claims. And Jesus made exclusive claims that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. And uh, John 3.16, I was interested, a little bit pleased to note that... Um, I can't think of his name right now. Somebody out there knows it. This guy who's a Church of Christ pastor. He's written a whole bunch of books. He's from over in San Antonio. What's his name? Max Lucado, yeah. He's a Church of Christ. I really don't know how accurate his gospel is, but he's written a book on John 3.16. There was an interview in the Chronicle uh, with him the other day, and he pointed out that he. they asked him, well, doesn't this bother you about the fact that, that John 3.16 makes this exclusive claim that there is salvation only in Jesus Christ. And he said, well, that's what it says. And so we have to talk about it. We have to emphasize that, that it clearly is an exclusive claim. So I was pleased that he was uh, standing up for that, and somebody in an interview stood up for it and didn't waffle. So we have the reality of divine judgment, exclusivity, and salvation. Second review point is to look at the universality of the flood. This is a huge debate today among uh, evangelicals. It shouldn't be, but it is, because so many have assumed that the evolutionist timetable is accurate and their time clocks are accurate, and they've, they've accurately determined that the earth is, is uh, billions of years or millions of years old, and the universe is billions of years old, that whenever you do that and you start messing with the literal... 24-hour day, 
seven consecutive day creation week in Genesis chapter 1, almost everybody who messes with that ends up going with a local flood. Because, see, fossils are only laid down, and fossils are laid down all over the earth. They're laid down in sediment, and as I pointed out last time, that what you, what you would predict from the Bible is if the earth is, that the earth has been covered with water and millions of dead things were buried in sediment. And so what you would expect to find geologically from that is, is millions of dead things buried in uh, sediment uh, all over the earth. And that's exactly what we find. Well, that either is evidence of a worldwide flood at the time of Noah or you have to put that catastrophe somewhat earlier. And if you follow some sort of longevity scheme like you have in, in uh, Darwinian evolution, then fossils were laid down gradually over long periods of time, and you reflect all the different, all, all the different ages. So you, you can only have fossils formed at one of these two times. It's either long before man was on the, on the planet, or it's at the flood. And when we go through the text, we see that the flood, the text, again and again and again, uses terms that relate to universe, the universality of the flood. It covered the whole earth. Uh, that should be, that's the covenant revised. What I mean by that is you have an initial creation covenant where God tells man to do certain things. He's to multiply and fill the earth. Those exact terms are used again in the uh, Noahic covenant. He is to rule over the animals. There's terms related to that. All the terms, all of the obligations man lays on, I mean God lays on man in Genesis chapter 2 become modified at the fall and then they're modified again at the flood. So we see the Noahic covenant is just a revision of the original creation covenant. And then fourth, there's a failure to spread over the earth and the establishment of the kingdom of man at Babel. So the first three review points focus on the flood and uh, the aftermath, and then the fourth point, the uh, Tower of Babel. So we talk a little bit about the uh, Noahic flood, and just to get a little background, uh, the background is given to us in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. You might want to turn there with me. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but the first eight verses give us an introduction, an introductory background to the events of the flood, explains why there is a flood. The first four verses describe the demonic attack on the human race, as well as the deplorable or wicked or degenerate conditions of the human race. For example, in verse 2, we uh, read that the sons of God, that's the demons, these are fallen angels, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all they chose. Now, when we studied that, I went through all the reasons for that. One of the primary reasons is just linguistics. The term sons of God in the Hebrew, Beneha Elohim, not Beneha Yahweh, that term is used of Israel, but Beneha Elohim is always used of Angels, And it, here it would describe fallen angels, that the sons of God uh, had some, in some way took, transformed their immaterial bodies into material bodies. People always ask questions about that. Well, if angels are immaterial or if they don't, uh, have, they don't marry, which is what Jesus said, then how are they capable 
of any kind of sexual intercourse. Well, what we see in Genesis 18 is when the angels visited uh, Abraham, they ate and they drank and they rested and they slept and their feet were washed. They, they, they are able to transform their immaterial body into a physical body with all of the uh, biological functions. And so we extrapolate from that that that's exactly what occurred here, and then we assume the the probability that God stopped this kind of activity after this particular event. But it tells us in these first four verses that uh, of the angelic attack, and then in verse 5 we learn of the uh, related evil of man. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And every intent, notice that, it doesn't say some, it's every. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil, was only evil continually. This is a very strong statement about the negative volition that dominated the planet prior to uh, the Noahic judgment. Now, two things I want you to note here is that this is the first time that the word evil is used since Genesis 2 and 3. In Genesis 2 and the first part of Genesis 3, it was always used in reference to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so it was used in that context. And then the last time that it's used in Genesis 3 is when God expels man from the garden and says, because now he knows good and evil as we do. So that's the last time we've heard mention of evil. And now we learn that man is evil and the thoughts of his heart are evil continuously. Now, there are people who have tried, and I've tried this, to try to make a distinction between sin and evil. But the term evil, which is the Hebrew word ra, which is just simply R-A, is a term that is frequently used as a synonym for sin. Evil and sin are synonymous. You get into the, the book of Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and again and again and again when, when you have the assessment of the ruler of the king in the north, it says, and so-and-so followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, and did evil in the sight of the Lord and worshipped in the high places. So evil is defined contextually as idolatry. Evil at its core is substituting something else uh, in God's place, which is exactly what happens in the Garden of Eden. The, uh, the woman wants to eat the fruit so she can be like God. She wants another God. She wants her to be God herself, and then Adam follows her. So evil is defined here or mentioned here for the first time since Genesis 3, and it's defined in terms of the wickedness of man and his rebellion and reject, rebellion against God and rejection of God. Then the other thing we should note here is that grace is used for the first time in the Bible in this section. And in verse 8, we read that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That doesn't mean that there wasn't evil before this, and it doesn't mean there wasn't grace before this. But this is the first time these terms are really brought out and used. And the writer, Moses, the, the human writer of Scripture and the divine writer of Scripture, want to draw our attention to these two ideas as being core and central to understanding the whole episode of the flood. It's going to show how God's grace is the only solution to sin. And so what we see in the flood episode as a judgment on sin is that the flood is a type of salvation. 
that just as there is only one way of being saved out of the flood, and God provides the way out of the flood, there is only one way of eternal salvation. One other note is that back there when we talk about the sons of God and the daughters of men, we learn in verse 4 that there were giants or Nephilim on the earth in those days. Now, some people have tried to make a technical term out of Nephilim, and that's wrong because if you do that, then you're going to have real problems when you get over into Joshua and you discover that there are Nephilim in the land of Canaan. Well, if God wipes out everybody but the family of Noah, and the family of Noah is genetically pure, they haven't been infiltrated by the, by the uh, demonic incursion, then how in the world are you going to have any Nephilim survive the flood? You're not. But it's clear that clearly stated in Joshua that there are Nephilim in the land. Nephilim is simply a Hebrew word for fallen ones, and it comes to be used idiomatically for giants or for monsters or for something of that nature. So it's not a technical uh, term for a half-breed or for a half-demon, half-man. It's applied to them, those who are half-man, half-demon, because you look at them and go, well, that's just some kind of giant or that's just some kind of monster. That's a Nephilim. And so that term was also applied to giants that inhabited the land of Israel during the time of the conquest, but there's no relationship uh, between the two. I brought that out. Somebody, I've had, these, what I'm trying to do as I go back through Genesis is answer the questions that I get asked again and again and again, even though I've spent a lot of time addressing them when we went through in context. So that's a question that frequently uh, comes up. Okay, let's go, let's look at our first point, which is grace, the exclusivity of salvation. And by this I mean that there's only one way to survive the coming judgment. There's only one way, that there's this, there, there's this correlation between grace and judgment in the Noahic flood. And here is a picture of the ark compared to a school bus. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of how large the ark was. It wasn't one of these little bitty boats you see in children's books that have the animals crammed in there and there a giraffe sticking his head out one window and an elephant sticking his head out another window and everybody's cramped for space. This thing was enormous and the animals probably took up only about 40% of the space. The other 40%, another 40% would have been given over to food supplies and then 20% for the living quarters for uh, Noah and his family. So it's uh, it had more than enough room. A number of different studies have been done. Whitcomb and Morris's work in the Genesis flood uh, said that uh, there were about 60, there's about 65,000 different animals that could have gone onto the ark, and they had a broader meaning for the word kind. In recent years, uh, an engineer by the name of John Woodmerappy has written just a fabulously detailed study called the Ark Feasibility Study, and he's analyzed intensive uh, animal husbandry methods and intensive zoology and intensive farming where they cram all kinds of animals onto, into a small barn or whatever and raise them and take care of them. And all these different techniques we use today where we can uh, you know, handle large amounts of animals in a small space, 
and he's tried to figure out how with somewhat rudimentary uh, technology you could deal with all of the waste. And he has all kinds of fun figures in there about how much methane gas would be pr- produced on a daily basis by all these animals and, you know, how, how much urine would be produced and, you know, how you'd have to have ventilation. See, that's a, you can see on that arc there, there's a, there's a, uh, a vent all the way across the top there. And so he goes into all kinds of details and you just find that rather fascinating to see how he deals with it. These are questions that most of us never even thought of. But he did a great job with that and shows that it's quite, uh, quite feasible. So in terms of gr- the exclusivity of salvation, first of all, God defines the problem. The problem is the wickedness and evil of man. It, the problem is sin. And God is going to define the solution to sin. Only God can do that because he is the creator. Second thing we note is that God always precedes deliverance with an extended offer of salvation. Grace always precedes judgment. So God is going to always provide a way out. And this happens down through history. Whenever God is going to judge Israel, he always provides a period ahead of time where the prophets come, warn of coming judgment. There's always that period of grace before judgment. And third, God is the one who, because he defines the problem, he defines the one way out. And he always provides that. He is the one who's able to control all the circumstances so that no matter how much chaos and catastrophe there is, God is the one who can bring order and stability out of chaos. So it is what we learn about salvation. One of the things that we learn about salvation from in Genesis 6 through 9 is grace. And one of the other things that we learn is that only God could provide salvation because only God is powerful enough to control all the factors to produce a sufficient salvation. Now, the next thing that I wanted to review was just dealing with the question, was the flood local or universal? Now, a couple of times in the last few weeks, I've mentioned uh, this guy, Dr. Hugh Ross, who's written a couple of books. He's getting to, he's pretty well known. He's got a large ministry. He's on TBN at least once a week, has a scientific show, and he tries to present all the scientific data showing that uh, that the earth has to be billions or millions of years old, and the universe billions of years old. He basically accepts all of the age uh, assumptions of evolution and he argues that the flood was just a local flood you'll also see this in many of the uh, shows that you see on Discovery Channel or A&E or the History Channel any of those type of shows in fact uh, a few years ago there was uh, a discovery made by some archaeologists that we've discovered where where the flood occurred and what the dynamics were and it had to do with uh, some flooding around the Black Sea area, and they view the flood as just a local, excuse me, just a local event somewhere in Turkey or the headwaters of the of the Euphrates Tigris River. So we have to deal, though, as as Christians who believe the Bible is the revelation of God and the truth and it's God's word, we have to deal honestly with the evidence that's in the text. 
So we're going to, I'm going to go through a number of slides where I just bring up different issues that have to be addressed. First of all, if the flood was local, why did Noah have to build an ark? Why didn't he just get on a camel? He had 120 years. He could have gotten out of the way. He could have gone all the way to China. If the flood was local, why did God send the animals to the ark so they would escape death? There would have been other animals in other parts of the world to reproduce the same kind if those particular animals had died. Third, if the flood was local, why was the ark big enough to hold all the kinds of land vertebrate animals that have ever existed? If only Mesopotamian animals were aboard, the ark would have been much, much smaller. It could have been... uh, a tenth of the size if all you were trying to save were the kinds of animals that live in the uh, Mesopotamian uh, valley area. So why do you have to have such a large, large ark? If the fl- fourth, if the, large, if the flood was local, why would birds have been sent on board? They could have just flown out of the way. Fifth, if the flood was local... How could the waters rise to 15 cubits above the mountains? This is what Genesis 7.20 says. Now think about it. Water always has to flow downhill. So if water is going to get 15 cubits or 8 meters uh, over the highest mountain, then the only way you can do that is to cover all of the earth. It can't do that with a, with a local flood. What are we, sixth? If the flood was local, it would not have solved the problem of the corruption of the human race worldwide. See, when you argue for a local flood, you don't take into account the cause of the flood. That's another thing that is. See, theology always interrelates. How you interpret one passage is going to affect how you interpret a lot of other passages. So if you take Genesis 6 through 9 as local, you have to argue that the sons of God aren't angels, but they're the descendants of Shem, of, uh, not Shem, the descendants of Seth. And you have the Seth line and you have the uh, Cain line. The Cain line would be the uh, daughters of men and the Seth line are the sons of God. They're the godly line. And so the, you have to interpret that as a problem between the uh, between intermarriage between the believer and unbeliever. But if you've got that as a problem, then you'd have a much worse problem today. Why does God have to destroy the human race or bring such a judgment just because believers are marrying unbelievers? And it would only be uh, unbelieving girls marrying unbelieving boys. See, it just doesn't fit the scenario. There's so many problems. But once you start down that road, you have to massage so many different things to... Try to make the Bible say what you want it to say instead of what it's saying. If the flood was local, people who did not happen to be living in the vicinity would not be affected by it. Folks, but, but another assumption they make is that the population wouldn't have been very large. People were just living in the Mesopotamian Valley. But if you go back, and as we, we, I did when we did this original study, people are living to be 950 years of age, and they're having many children, not just five or six, and those children are living to be 900 years of age, and you have as many as 
nine or ten generations living at the same time. Just think about it. Everybody born since about 1,050 would still be alive. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, all these guys would all still be alive. We'd have a population on the earth of 20 million just because nobody died. You have to have people die to keep the population down. If they don't die, the population intensifies. So you look at uh, books like uh, Whitcomb and Morris's Genesis Flood have done the math, and they figure that if you had, uh, if you assume every family had three boys and three girls, and they married, and of course that's a small number, I think, that very likely they had many more than that, and they married, and you extrapolate the numbers, do the math, then you'd have a population minimum of two and a half billion on the earth at the time of the flood, and um, uh, maybe as much as four or five billion, maybe as many people as you have on the earth today. Kind of gives you a new idea of what Jesus says when he returns at times will be like, like uh, the time of Noah. There were only eight believers on the planet. That's, that's, they're, they're a fairly small minority. If the flood was local, God would have repeatedly broken his promise to never flood the earth again. Just think about those folks in New Orleans a couple of years ago and those folks up in the Midwest right now who are going through all those floods. If God said, promised, that said, as long as you see that rainbow, I'll never send, a, uh, I'll never destroy the earth by flood again, then God's broken his word on a frequent basis ever since. So again, it just doesn't make sense. And I always like this little cartoon, if you can read it. You have these two guys. All you see is their heads, and they're looking at a rainbow saying, look at that beautiful rainbow, the older man says. It's a promise from God that he'll never again flood the entire earth as he did in Noah's day. And the young man says, well, my Christian college professor said that Noah's flood didn't cover the entire earth. So the old man said he told you it was just a localized flood. That's what he said, says the young man. And then the camera pans out, and you see that they're sitting on a rooftop, and the whole area is covered in floodwaters. Looks like the Mississippi flooding. So he says, so he believes that God promised to never again send a localized flood. I just think this is a great argument. Just, you just need to have real simple understanding of Scripture to, to show their problems. One of the uh, evidences of the universality of the flood is just the terminology that you use. You can read through the chapters yourself and underline the terms, but I'm just going to run through these very quickly to emphasize this. The earth was filled with violence. It's not partial, it's filled. All flesh, not some flesh, all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth, Genesis 6.12. Genesis 6.13, the end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence again. Genesis 6.17, to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, God said. 6.19, and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring to of every kind into the ark. Every, all, all. It sounds pretty universal to me. Genesis 6.20, of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, he could have left the snakes off. Gee. Uh, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Uh, Genesis 7, 2, every clean animal by seven. See, that's another misnomer. It wasn't two by two. It was only two by two of the unclean animals. Seven by the, uh, for, the, for the clean animals. They had the extra one for a sacrifice. 
Genesis 7, 4, every living thing is going to be blotted out. Genesis 7, 8, uh, everything that creeps on the ground. Genesis 7, 11, all the fountains of the deep were opened. Uh, Genesis 7, 14, every beast, all the cattle, every creeping thing, and every bird. Uh, all flesh, Genesis 7, 15, all flesh in which was the breath of life destroyed. Here's another little cartoon I think makes a good point. You have an older man says, We don't need to believe the Bible story of Noah's flood is true. The important thing is that we learn the lesson from the story. See, that's what so many people want to do. These are just morality tales. And so the young woman says, Well, if Noah had the same attitude as you do about God's word, he would have been in big trouble. He never would have built the ark. See, Noah had to take God literally when he said to build the ark. Now, another thing that we did when we went through there was just to go through a chronology of the flood. The, most people are uninformed, and they think that the ark, the, the flood only lasted 40 days and 40 nights. Yet if you take the Scripture at its word, they entered the ark in Genesis 7:11. They waited seven days. This was in the tenth day of the second month of Noah's 600th year. They, there was, that was followed by 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Then there were 110 days where the water continued to rise. And after 150 days after that, the ark rested. They waited 74 days while the water continued to recede. And then the tops of the mountains became uh, visible. After 40 days, he uh, sent out a raven, waited seven days, sent out the first dove, seven days sent out the second dove, and then uh, waited over the seven days to the for the uh, third dove. Then uh, he waited until the, uh, that should be the 10th day of the first month. There's a, that's not 11, 10, 600. That's, uh, that should be 110, 601. Uh, got the one in the wrong place. And then he ordered to offload on the 27th day of the second month of his 601st year. So that's a total of 371 days. A little over a year. Long time to be on those boat with those animals. Another thing is to just chart out the ages of the patriarchs when they lived, when they died. The, the lower line indicates their age when they uh, gave birth to the son that's mentioned in the genealogy. The upper line indicates when they died. If you notice, you have all the patriarchs prior to the flood living into the 900, sometime in that area. And then suddenly, right after the Noahic flood, the ages drop off into an exponential decay curve. You can just plot that out just as you would in measuring any kind of uh, decrease in, in from one state to another where something changes. And so you don't have... Uh, Moses sitting down with his computer trying to figure out how to uh, plot these things out on a graph. And this is just another evidence that the ages and all the data uh, fits a real situation. Then we come to the third area of review, and that has to do with the covenant. First time the word covenant is used is in Genesis 6:18 God said to Noah I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark you and your sons your wife your sons with you 
Now, there's a lot of people who think that because this is the first mention of the word covenant, that you really can't say that uh, anything before that is a covenant, just because the word is not used. In fact, uh, there's some dispensationalists today who, get, I think, just get a little too caught up with this, and they say that you, this, uh, because covenant's not mentioned in Genesis 6.18, the first covenant's no Noahic covenant. I think that's wrong because of Hosea 6.7. Hosea 6.7 says that like Adam, literally in the Hebrew, like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. It's a condemnation of the Jews and saying just like Adam, they, the Jews, transgressed their covenant. Now, the argument that is presented is, see, Adam here really refers to mankind. And all of mankind has, and then they treat it progressively. Like all of mankind has, has, has broken the covenant. But when did mankind break the covenant? When did the human race, they broke it in Adam. Let's use a little New Testament exegesis in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. It was in Adam that all die. So even if you try to take Adam here as just referring to mankind or the human race, it still leads you back to that one act of Adam. When Adam sinned, Hosea 6, 7 says he transgressed a covenant. And if you look at the terminology that you have in Genesis chapter 9, where you have the command to be fruitful and multiply in verse 1, and then you have emphasis on the animals and what they can eat. You have uh, restrictions on what they can eat. You have uh, governmental stipulations. Uh, all of these things, you have the same category of information taking place in Genesis 2. It's revised in Genesis 3 and revised again here. So, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, and it's a duck. So then that must be a covenant in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, establishing a creation covenant. And then, let me go into that slide. Gentile covenants. You have the Edenic covenant, followed by the fall, then the Adamic covenant, followed by the Noahic covenant, which is still in effect. These are all modifications, universal covenants that are in effect for all of mankind. And the Noahic Covenant doesn't go out of effect until when? What? Yeah, new heavens and new earth. Well, actually, it's going to be the millennial kingdom because I don't think we're going, there won't be any death, so we won't be killing animals and eating meat. So it'll just be up to the second coming. God's going to have tofu that's going to taste just like prime rib, though. I know it. He can do it. And then next time we'll get into the Jewish covenants. Okay, let me back up. I got ahead of myself here. A covenant is simply a legal contract, and this implies several things. It implies, first of all, that both parties are persons. A thing, a force, can't enter into a legal contract. So if God institutes a covenant with man, that indicates that God is a person. It also indicates that the one who establishes the contract should be able to guarantee the promises. He will be able to fulfill that which he promises within the covenant. So if God is able to 
promise that the earth won't be destroyed by water or by a flood, then we don't have to get too worried about global warming and the fact that the, the polar caps will melt and the oceans will rise and we'll all have to go live somewhere up on one of the 14,000-foot peaks in Colorado. Also implies that the giving of the covenant is an expression of God's grace to fallen man. And God is going to supply the guidelines for the relationship. I think this is just so fabulous. The implications of this are wonderful. That God in some way restricts himself to define in a legal sense for man how he is going to relate to man. God reveals, God's the one who puts himself in a box, so to speak. I always hated that when I talked to charismatics. I didn't want to put God in a box. No, God in a revelation tells us how he's going to relate to man, what he's going to do and what he's not going to do. Uh, it's not that we're saying, oh, God, you really can't do that. That would be absurd. But God is the one who limits and, and provides the boundaries for the relationships, and then he always provides the basis for it. This shows that man's relationship with God is always based on immutable legal principles that are articulated in specific written regulations. And that has tremendous implications just for the whole study of law and the whole issue of law as a foundation for a culture. Okay, and then the, the provisions for the Noahic covenant are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the same command that was given to Adam and Eve. The only difference is that Adam and Eve are not told to, I mean, Noah isn't told to subdue the earth. Why? He can't do it. Only the second Adam can subdue the earth now. As long as the earth is under the curse, man can't subdue it. But he is still responsible uh, to some degree for carrying out uh, control to, to responsibly utilize uh, the earth. Second point, there's fear now placed upon the animals that wasn't there apparently before the flood. There wasn't this antagonism, this animosity between, between the animals. May even be that you don't have carnivores uh, develop too much. Maybe there were. Well, we got the fossils for Tyrannosaurus rex and others. You've got some carnivores before the flood, but you don't have this uh, antagonism with man. Now there's a fear uh, placed upon the animals. Uh, animals are the the earth. The, um, animals are now given into their hands. So there's an authority and responsibility of man over the creation. Fourth, there's an authorization to eat meat. It's almost mandated to eat meat. I realize that some people, because of their particular digestion, need to be vegetarian, but there seems to be something here that the environment has changed. Something is provided in terms of nutrition through the eating of meat, and I don't mean just red beef. I mean meat in terms of fish or uh, fish or fowl as well as beef, but it's an authorization to eat meat. So I also find it interesting that pagan religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, various New Age religions, always seem to, one of the first things they go to is we're going to go to vegetarianism. There's a theological thing going on there and a rejection of the Noahic covenant. The eating of blood is prohibited. This isn't talking about eating a good rare steak. It's talking about eating the blood because that rep the blood represents life. And so it indicates a respect for life even when you take life legally. Sixth, uh, death is required of every beast or man who takes a human life in a prohibitive manner. 
And what's important to note here, this lays a basis for capital punishment and for the execution of animals that attack their trainers or their owners because they lose respect for man as the image and representative of God. The reason for capital punishment isn't to deter crime. Don't ever use that argument. That's not biblical. That's a pragmatic argument, and it may not be true. You may be subverted by statistics. I don't think those statistics are true, but don't get caught in that trap. Uh, the rationale, the reason given in the text is because man is in the image of God. Anyone who is so perverted and degenerate and has, has sin nature has become so much a dominant force in his life that they have such a low respect for human life that, that by killing another human being, you are making an assault on God, as it were. And so it's viewed as a theological act of blasphemy to take the life of an image bearer, and just because you do that, you need to forfeit your life. It's such a serious offense. And his seventh point is this covenant is made with Noah, his descendants, that's all the human race, and the animals. So it is a, uh, a covenant that includes all, all the creation. Eighth, there's a promise to never again destroy the world in the same way. So the next destruction will be by fire. Now we come to the next point that we cover in chapters 11 and tw- uh, chapters 10 and 11, which is what happens after Noah. The expansion throughout the earth of his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Genesis chapter 10 is a fascinating study because it shows the spread of his descendants. Japheth's descendants primarily go into uh, northern and eastern Europe, uh, Russia. All of those areas are the descendants of Japheth. And their languages are very different. They're very closely connected in many ways, but they're different. Then the second category is the sons of Ham, uh, described in Genesis 10, 6, on down through 21. It's a much larger section describing the sons of Ham. Why? Because the, the sons of Ham are very closely related and geographically close to the Israelites. They're going to interact a lot with them, and so there's more detail given about them, and one of the most uh, interesting of these characters is Nimrod, who is mentioned in verse 8, and that really provides a background for understanding the Tower uh, of Babel. Nimrod elevates himself as a mighty hunter before the Lord kind of misses the nuance a little bit. It's really against the Lord. He He's setting himself up in authority against the Lord, and he's going to build his own kingdom on earth. And it's called the kingdom of Shinar, and this is roughly equivalent to the ancient kingdom of Sumer, located right in the uh, Mesopotamian Valley between the Tigris and Euphrates River. Uh, Nimrod is viewed also through mythology as one of the uh, antagonists uh, to God. The whole, this whole episode with Nimrod foreshadows the Tower of Babel episode in, in chapter 11. His name is derived from a root word meaning to rebel, and we see his kingdom is based on power and violence. According to Josephus, Nimrod led a spiritual rebellion against God, teaching that men owed their happiness to themselves and their own pursuits rather than to God. And so he then gets elevated in mythology to God. He's called 
uh, Marduk, Ninurta, various other names, and he becomes uh, rather bigger than life and, and legendary. So he, he gets associated with the god of fertility. So Nimrod, and he, in, in mythology, he has a, his consort is Semiramis. And so they became, become the progenitors of this whole kingdom of man that builds a tower of Babel. And this is a religious assault on God, trying to build their own tower, their own mountain, to elevate themselves uh, over, uh, up over anything, any judgment that God can make. They're going to make a name for themselves in Genesis chapter 11. Now, it's interesting that God, and after he judges them, he's going to call out Abram and tell Abram he will make a name for Abram. So you see this contrast between the arrogance of the people of the Tower of Babel and Abram. So here we have a picture of the ancient, an artist's conception of the ancient Tower of Babel. And, of course, we have the modern Tower of Babel, which is the uh, EU linguistic headquarters in Strasbourg, France, where they're hoping to break down all the languages, and this is their translation headquarters. And it was specifically designed by the architect, as I pointed out in our Revelation study, to, to picture the unfinished Tower of Babel. And so one of people out there who's been listening to the Revelation series sent me a diagram where they merged the two together. The ancient Tower of Babel just bleeds right into the modern Tower of Babel. And it is at the Tower of Babel that languages are confused. There's over 6,000 languages on the earth today. And they continue to multiply. And the biggest uh, difference in languages is among those who are descendants from Ham. And it's the descendants of Ham that are responsible for the Tower of Babel. And yet God is so great that even in the confusion and the chaos of human languages... God is still able to communicate his word in such a way that even though we gain greater insight by studying it in the original, uh, you don't have to study it in the original to understand the basic doctrines of Scripture. It can be translated in every language of the human race, and the truth of God's word uh, can go to every, uh, into every tongue, every language. So that takes us up through the first 11 chapters, the creation, the fall, and the flood, And next time we'll come back and get into the major change that takes place with Abram. We'll do a review of Abraham next week, and then we'll finish it two weeks from then. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We pray that you would help us to put these things together to understand these doctrines and the flow of Scripture and just have a greater appreciation for how you've revealed yourself to us. May we always remember to depend upon your grace, that your grace provides the only solution for the judgments that come upon the human race, whether self-imposed or whether they originate with you. The only solution is your solution. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.